Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Well, if all, if all goes according to plan and timing, sometime within the next couple of weeks, I am going to become something I have never been before in my life. I am going to be a grandpa. I know, I know, I don't look that old, but... <laughs> and of course, you know, when, uh, when, when, when you're pregnant, every, you know, everybody has all these questions. You know, do you know if it's going to be a boy? Is it going to be a girl? You know, have you found out yet? Um, and then, of course, the inevitable question is, have you picked out a name? And um, I was thinking about that this week uh, in preparation for the series. The series is Unsung Heroes, and we're looking at some of the lesser-known people uh, in the Bible, and there's some really incredible stories, very remarkable people, ordinary people that did remarkable things, and they have some really, really cool names, and you know, people take names out of the Bible and name their kids after, you know, Paul and Peter and Matthew and everything, but there's an Old Testament character that I bet nobody has ever named their kids after. His name is Mephibosheth. <laughs> Doesn't that just roll off your tongue, you know? In fact, just, it's really cool just to say it. Mephibosheth, okay? Let's all say it together just for fun, all right? Mephibosheth. Yeah, that's just cool. I just, too bad it's going to be a girl, you know? It's a great name. If you don't know the story of Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, and I'm probably going to stumble over this this week. I have been practicing all week on this name. Um, if you don't know his story, he is the grandson of Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And his father, Jonathan, um, who would have been heir to the throne, was actually a very, very deep and loyal friend to David, who became the second king of Israel. And the reason this happened was because of Saul's disobedience. Though he had been established as the king of Israel, um, his disobedience and his rebellion to the ways and the things of God, God rejected him as king, told him, you are no longer going to be the king. And none of your descendants will. Your, Your family will not be the descendants of this throne. Now, Jonathan was one of those descendants. He would have been the heir to the throne. But because of his father's disobedience, they're all rejected. And yet he has this great relationship with what he finds out later is to be the new king of Israel. And after about 30 years of Saul's reign, both Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle. And David becomes the second king of Israel. And under David's kingship, actually, the nation of Israel becomes, it reaches its peak. It becomes unified, um, it expands, it flourishes, uh, a palace is built for the king, um, and the nation enjoys a great time of peace. And about 13 to 15 years or so into David's reign, as you read through the story in 2 Samuel, chapter 9, there's just one chapter, just one little chapter, 13 verses, that talks about this guy named Mephibosheth. Let me read you the story. It's on page 303 in those Bibles on on the seat next to you if you want to follow along. David now has been king for about 15 years. And one day it says, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. And they called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba's answered, He is at the house of Maker, son of Amiel, in Lo-Dabar. 
So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, the son of Emil. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay honor to him. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given you your your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring him the crop so that your master's grandson will be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both his feet. Now, this whole series is unsung heroes, and you're probably wondering, what is so heroic about Mephibosheth? (laughs) I mean, why do you pick him as an unsung hero? What is so heroic about him? What makes him a hero? And it's simply this. This little story, just kind of tucked away in the Bible, is a picture, a real-life picture of what the power of grace can do. What God's grace does. And when you hear his story as we look through it this morning, I think you'll get a better understanding of what God's grace is all about and what it can truly do because God's grace is truly amazing. It is a powerful thing. And there's a number of things that grace does that nothing else can do. Grace frees us. It gives us freedom from the prison of our past. This last weekend, many of you probably noticed I wasn't here, I got invited to... uh, to speak at the church that I grew up in in San Francisco. They were actually the, the mother church that sponsored us as we started Northgate 19 years ago. And it was a great opportunity. I haven't been back there on a Sunday morning for 19 years. I was invited back to speak, um, preach last Sunday. So I went and I preached and, you know, everybody came, oh, I haven't seen you in years. How are things going? And I had, I had my old Sunday school teacher. And she came up to me and she says, I remember you. <laughs> First grade Sunday school teacher. When you and your cousins got together, you were terrorists. You are almost the reason I quit teaching Sunday school. (laughs) Some people will never let you forget. (laughs) The thing is, all of us have histories. All of us have a past. But the thing is, grace is a freedom word. It is a thing that releases us from the past, whatever it is. The whole story begins with David asking a question. Is there no one still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Now, I might circle that word kindness because it's really an important word. It's found throughout the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is chesed, and it's translated in a number of different ways. It's translated sometimes mercy or grace or faithfulness or goodness. Most often, it is used, translated loving kindness, speaking about God's attitude and God's work. In fact, it's found mostly than anything else in the book of Psalms. As David reflects on the mercies and the kindness and the goodness of God, that word comes up over and over and again. And it is an incredibly powerful word. It means more than just being kind. It is the essence of grace. It's a freedom word. 
And by nature, it is something that cannot be confined or hoarded or kept hidden away. Grace by its nature has to be expressed. And the reason that David is looking for a descendant of, Saul, of, of Jonathan is because way, way back when, when Saul found out that he was no longer going to be king, and that in fact, not his son was not going to be king, that David was going to be the king, Saul had a real hard time with that. And on a numer- numerous occasions, attempted to kill David. And in spite of all that, Saul's son Jonathan had this great, deep, loyal relationship with David, and, and even even without his dad knowing it, protected David. And when there was a plot to kill him and Saul was looking for him to kill, Jonathan made sure that he got away to safety. And in that last time that Jonathan and David spent together, David said to him, I will not forget your kindness. And Jonathan said, would you just please make sure that you take care of my family. Wherever you go, whenever you become king, would you please remember my family with kindness? And that's what David's doing. See, years ago, he received grace and mercy and kindness from someone that didn't need to show him any of that. And the result of that is he passed it on because having received grace, we are required to extend grace. That's what it's all about. In fact, Philip Yancey in his book, The Amazing Thing, What's So Amazing About Grace, he talks about this. He says, the one thing the world cannot do, the one thing the world cannot do is offer grace. It is the one thing that the church has to offer people that they cannot find anywhere else. If there is anything that should mark the church of Jesus Christ, it is grace. Not just talked about, not just preached about, not just studied, but grace extended. Because grace is not grace unless it is passed on. And David, having received grace, is now extending grace. Now, Jonathan is dead. Saul is dead. The only one that knows about this promise that he made was Jonathan. He has really a good out. He doesn't have to do anything because nobody knows about this promise. Certainly Mephibosheth doesn't, and he's your last living relative. But having experienced grace, he extends grace because grace takes the initiative. Grace goes out looking. Grace asks the question, is there somebody that I can help? Is there somebody who needs my mercy? Is there somebody who needs to know the grace of God? That's what grace does. It asks that question over and over and over again. Whatever it takes, I will be an extension of God's grace in this world. And that's this whole thing about no excuses that we're talking about this year in our church, is we will do whatever it takes. Next month, a month from today, we are starting a Sunday evening service because there's a whole group of people that work on Sunday mornings and cannot be a part of a community of faith. We're not doing it because we want one more thing to do. We are doing it because we will do whatever it takes to extend the grace of God. And so David asks a question, and he gets this answer. A man named Ziba, one of Saul's former servants, says, Yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. He is at the house of Machir, son of Emil, in Lodabar. Now, that city that he is living in, Lodabar, okay, the word literally means no pasture. Okay? It is a desolate place. It is some far corner of the empire. And he's out there living. In fact, it's, it is so desolate that when people came and decided they were going to settle this place, and they looked around and says, wow, there's no pasture. There's a good name for the city. 
I mean, imagine living in a city that is described by what it is not, okay? That's low the bar. You couldn't, it is aptly named. In fact, even in the English, you couldn't set the bar much lower. <laughs> oh, I know. And he is living there. He is living in the city because of his past. He is living there because of his past. And if you read a few, if you rewind a couple of chapters back in 1 Samuel 4, we find out why he's there. Because when the news about Saul and Jonathan had come from Jezreel, that they had been killed, it said his nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, she dropped him. He fell and became crippled. He is living in Lodabar as a cripple, and it is directly a result of his past. He carries with him the stigma of a family history, of a king who was not a good king, who was rejected by God. That's his family history. He is the only one left. And he is known because of what his father, his grandfather, was not. He is living in a place that is described by what it is not. He is a cripple because his nurse, when she was fleeing, because what usually happened in those days is when a new king came to the throne, the rest of the family of the old king was wiped out because they posed a potential threat. So the reason they flee is because Saul and Jonathan have been killed. There's a new king coming to town, and we got to get out of here before we're all killed. And so it has to do with this family history. It has to do, he's a casualty of a fall. And he is now living with the deformity of his brokenness in a place that is known for what it is not. He is someone who can do nothing to help himself. He is someone who has nothing to offer. He has nothing. He's done nothing. He deserves nothing. Here's a picture of a man in need of grace. And every one of us in this room carry a past of some form or another. It might be family shame. And you sit in this room, but there are skeletons in your family closet that you carry with you. It might be the failure and the fall of guilt and shame. It might be simply carrying the scars of a hurt you did not deserve. But every one of us has a past. And we have no means to help ourselves out of it. We are desperate for grace. Paul wrote about it to the Roman church. He described us this way. When we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. In grace, God took the initiative. He didn't wait for us to overcome our past. He didn't wait for us to clean up our lives. He didn't wait for us to get it all together. When we were powerless, when we were his enemies, when we were still sinners, he came for us. And that is the message of grace. That God has come for us to rescue us from our past. But not only that, not only that, if that were not enough, grace now also gives us the embrace of acceptance. Everyone longs for acceptance. Psychologists tell us it is the single most compelling need in our lives. We all want to be wanted. 
We all want to be accepted. And yet every one of us, I am sure in this room, have at one time or another experienced the pain of rejection. And it's not so much rejected because of our too badness. Sometimes it's the rejection of the, our not good enoughness. <laughs> that we don't measure up. That we somehow don't fit with everybody else. I am a big, my wife and I, we are big Survivor fans. We, every time it comes on, we watch it. And it's, and it's you know, it's, it's kind of a sick thing because every week somebody gets voted out of the tribe, you know. It's like, we don't want you, snuff out his flame, you know. But a couple of seasons ago, worst ever, I, they've never done it since and they've never done it before. But what they did was the first, the very first day as they got to the island, they come in and they don't have teams yet. And so they pick two leaders, and these two leaders are to choose up teams, okay? It's the first day. They don't know anybody else on the island. They've never met each other before in their lives. They're all strangers, and they sit there, and they pick out teams. Only there's an odd number of people there. It doesn't get into two even teams. And so they pick the whole thing, and it comes down to there's one person left. She just got to the island. Sorry. Get back in the boat. You're going home. The ultimate of rejection. You don't even know me, and you've rejected me. <laughs> Between fourth and fifth grade, my family moved from one side of town to the other. And with the move, I started going to a new school. And the first day at the new school at recess, you know, we go out to play kickball. Nobody knows me. Now, I will admit, I was not the greatest athlete on the field, okay? But I was usually picked near the top at my old school. And I get to the new school, and I'm the last one picked. Yeah. <laughs> Scarred for life. But it's amazing how those are the things you remember. You could probably remember a time of rejection. Held at arm's length, picked last. Given up on, maybe. And what that does to us at the deepest level, it leaves us with these feelings of being unacceptable. Because someone rejected us. There must be something wrong with me. And you can almost hear it. You can almost hear it in Mephibosheth's voice when he meets with King David. And he bows down and he says to him, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Here is a guy who all his life has been rejected. When he was a young child, rejected from the throne. Living in a place that is known for what it is not. And not even accepted there. Can't fend for himself, can't care for himself. He's a cripple. He is of no value and no use to anybody. And you can hear it in his voice as he says, why would you be interested in a dead dog like me? A life of rejection has left, left him hopeless in his spirit. But here's the good news. Grace offers us the thing that we need most. God's grace offers us acceptance before we become acceptable. <laughs> that is the grace of God. And that is how it is lived out in David. David says to him, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. His grandfather Saul had been king. That's a lot of land. And he says, I will restore all of it back to you. And you will always eat at my table. You are welcome into my family. You will eat meal with me. This is not an arm's length tolerance, okay? This is the embrace of grace 
fully restored, eating at the table. And that, by the way, in Hebrew culture was an important thing. To be eating at table with somebody was to be fully included, fully accepted, fully adopted. Table is about community. It's about family. It's about closeness and affirmation and inclusion. And that's why, by the way, Jesus got in so much trouble with the religious leaders when he would eat at table with prostitutes and sinners and publicans and fishermen and tax collectors because nobody eats with those guys. Why would you hang out with them? They are useless. They are a pox on society. But Jesus lived out what God has always been about, what David had experienced and what David extends, a full embrace. And grace overcomes our guilt and our shame and our hurt and our rejection. Again, Paul wrote to the Roman church, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are now God's children. That is the embrace of grace, that we are accepted by the only one whose acceptance matters, our Heavenly Father. We have done nothing. We have nothing. We deserve nothing. But we are accepted. And with that, there is one more thing. What grace does is it allows us to live with our imperfections. See, we are in need of grace on a daily basis. You read the story, and over and over again, four times, four times, it says about, you will always eat at my table, and Mephibosheth will always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Over and over and over. It says, that is the thing. They want to make sure that we understand. Every day, he ate at at king's table. Every day, we are in need of God's grace because we are a mixed bag when it comes to our morality. We are all a mixed bag. We are a set of walking contradictions, Lewis Smead says. We have been freed from sin's guilt, and yet we have this propensity to dabble in it more. We have tons of good intentions, but we are drawn away by unruly desires. We have been embraced by God, but we have this tendency to wander. We are a mixed bag. Smeeds writes about it in his book, Shame and Grace. I love the way he puts this. Describing his own life, he says, I want good things for my friends, but I am not able to celebrate the way I should when they get the prizes while I plug along with nobody noticing. I don't want you to lose your job, but if one of us has to lose our job, I will be glad if it's not I. (laughs) I do not have it in me to brutalize another human being. But I would not be plunged into grief if a certain pushy competitor suffered a streak of bruising bad luck. (laughs) I am committed to telling the truth, but if I badly want something that you have plenty of and I could get it by cheating a little without your noticing, I would not bet my pension on my honesty. The point is that the grace of God comes to us in our scrambled spiritual disorder our mangled inner mass and accepts us with all the unsorted clutter, accepts us with all our potential for doing real evil and all our fascinating flaws that make us such interesting people. He accepts us totally as the spiritual stew that we are. 
you and I will never be so pure that we will never need God's grace. The last word on Mephibosheth, I told you earlier, four times it says he ate at king's table. The fourth time, there's a little footnote. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both his feet. He ate at king's table, but he was crippled in both his feet. He was crippled in both his feet, yet he ate at the king's table. And what he is saying there is, All of his life, Mephibosheth lived with the limp of his imperfection. And so do we. So do we. And our imperfections are the constant reminder that we are in desperate need of God's grace. And the beautiful thing is, his grace allows us to live with those imperfections. Again, Paul wrote about it to the Roman church. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We all walk with the limp of our imperfections. We are never so pure that we will never need His grace. The good news is we will never exhaust his supply of grace. It is a work. It is a work of grace from beginning to end. We never out, outgrow it. We never lose our need for it. And he never runs out of it. Sometimes when I talk to people about baptism, they think about it as if it's, it's a final goal. And they're saying things like, I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. I'm not sure if I can, I'm not good enough yet to get baptized. And I keep telling people, it's not the end goal. It's the starting point. It is a reminder that my life has been changed and I live in a new direction now. And I made that decision. And every day all I do is try to take one more step in that direction. And that's what baptism gives to me. The ability to take the next step. Grace is not the, the, the liberty to indulge my, my own urges. Grace is the freedom to be changed. And that is the power of God's grace. John wrote about it. Now, now, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That... That is grace. I was talking this week with someone who's a part of our recovery ministry here. And he's been clean and sober for a number of years now. But there's stuff going on in his life and there's a lot of pressures and a lot of things going on. I was talking with him this week and he says, you know, it has been really, really tough lately. But he says, I go Monday nights and I sit with this group of people And I know I'm accepted. And I know that I am loved and embraced because these people are the embodiment of grace to me. And that is good news, folks. That is good news. Would you bow your heads with me? 
Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.